Amen. Last week, we kicked off a new series called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, and it's based off this book. Uh, the title is based off of a book of the same name by a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in uh, New York City, and he wrote this book, and as I mentioned last week, this book has profoundly impacted my own life, and some of the concepts in this book have really shaped me and, and my own family and my own uh, kind of practice of Christian spirituality, and so we want to kind of talk about not like we're not ch- teaching through the book as much as we are looking at the scriptures together and saying, what does this have to say to us about what it means to love well? We said the goal of the series is to help us all love better, to get, gather and to learn the skills to love each other well. And we kicked that off last week in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the danger of being a gifted congregation, ambitious, talented, but without love. And, and so we said this last week, um, that uh, quoting Scazzaro, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And we defined emotional health this way. We said it's not about self-improvement. This is about growth in Christ-likeness. We said emotional health is the capacity to live from an integrated heart. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength. An integrated heart that is increasingly experiencing and then able to give the transforming love of Jesus to other people. Now, why talk about family of origin? Is this just another attempt to get into therapy in, you know, in, on Sunday morning? Well, certainly we probably all could use some more therapy, but one of the primary arenas that we learn to love and to trust and to develop intimacy with other people or not is through our families of origin. And this is counterintuitive to some of us to go to this place because some of us have been taught to think that when we come to know Jesus, like many of you came to know Jesus as high school students. I've done a lot of weddings. I've heard a lot of testimonies. High school students, college students, and young adults. Many of you have come to know Jesus. And and you're taught that when you come to know Jesus, you're kind of zapped. Like I've used the analogy of the matrix. Like a big cord is stuck in the back of your head and all of your memories erased. And then all of this like Jesus stuff is downloaded and all of your past gets wiped out. The old is gone. The new has come. And it's like, ta-da, now you're a loving person. Except it doesn't work that way, does it? That may be true, and it is true in terms of your status with God. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, the old is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Your fear, in terms of your standing with God, it's gone. And yes, the new has come. Christ has come, and he's making all things new. But it is not true that your habits your patterns, your scripts from your past that you learned very early in your family of origin are gone. They continue to live on. And so I want to look at this through the lens of this story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We taught on this several years ago when we were finishing up Genesis, the story of Joseph. It has a lot to teach us about family, about both the beauty and the blessing of family as well as the brokenness. So I just want to read these seven verses, if you have your Bible. Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. I want us to hear how God transformed a man named Joseph. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me tell you a little bit about the story of Joseph, because it actually starts earlier in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we first learn about Joseph's family of origin. Joseph didn't just magically appear as this amazing, resilient, forgiving person. He actually started his life as a teenager, we learn about in Genesis 37. So the story of Joseph is about a quarter of the book of Genesis. He started as an insecure, arrogant, whiny brat. Genesis chapter 12, we learn about Joseph's family of origin. We learn that Joseph comes honestly by some of these family traits. Joseph's uh, great-grandfather, Abraham, Father Abraham, was called by God to be a blessing to the nations. God takes this pagan named Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, I want you to go from your country, go from your father's house, your family of origin, to the land that I will show you that will eventually become the promised land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the key. And all in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham is set apart. His family will become a blessing to the entire earth. God's original design for the family was that it would be an incubator of blessing. You see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Take the blessings of the Garden of Eden and multiply them throughout the world, God says to Adam and Eve. And he says the same thing to Abram. So this, this pattern of blessing, this covenant with God, gets passed down from one generation to the next. One of the things you see through the book of Genesis in chapters 12 to 37 is this refrain of the Lord was with them. The Lord was with Abraham. The Lord was with Isaac. The Lord was with Jacob. The Lord was with Joseph. So there is a blessing, there is an inheritance that is passed down, even in the midst of trauma and brokenness, from one generation to the next. But there's also some negative patterns that get passed down through our families. There's also a lot of brokenness and sin and injustice that gets passed down through the family. We see patterns from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob continue to play themselves out time and time again. Abraham has this deep pattern of lying. He lies about his wife, Sarah, remember that, many times, and actually offers her up for prostitution. So much for traditional family values in the book of Genesis. Abraham lies about Sarah. His son Isaac is a chronic liar. Jacob, his grandson, the word Jacob in the Hebrew means deceiver or liar. He's actually named the liar. There's favoritism that runs through this family tree. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favors Esau. And we're going to see that Jacob favors Joseph. There's sibling rivalry and resentment and cutoff between siblings, Ishmael and 
Isaac. Like these, these cutoffs run through the generations. There's sexual infidelity and abuse that runs from generation to generation. Abraham had a child with his wife's servant, Hagar, because he refused to wait on God's promise in the midst of their infertility. We see that continue on down the line to Jacob. We see broken marriages. This dysfunction is the backdrop for Joseph's family over a couple generations. Joseph's father, Jacob, longing for the blessing of his father, the affirmation of his father, develops this fixation with a woman named Rachel. And he thinks, if I can just have Rachel, then it'll make everything in my life okay. She's the emotional center of his world. She becomes the blessing for Jacob. And he spends 14 years serving Laban, her dad, so that he can get Rachel as his wife. The story continues to get weirder. He eventually has 13 children, sons and, 12 sons and a daughter, with four different women. This is like some kind of, you know, crazy Jerry Springer show. Rachel, unfortunately, dies in childbirth. She has Joseph and she has Benjamin. She dies with Benjamin. And what happens there in that transition is that Joseph becomes the favorite. Joseph becomes the emotional center of Jacob's world. And what we see in this family is favoritism playing itself out. Underneath all this prosperity, there was tons of wealth. They had tons of land, tons of animals, lots of prosperity. But underneath this family, underneath the cover, is rivalry, bitterness, envy, and arrogance between the 12 brothers. Joseph has these dreams, and he goes and he brags about it, and he says to his brothers and his father, I have a dream where you're all going to bow down to me. Like typical 17-year-old, right? Like the world revolves around him. No offense. And so Joseph's brothers, they, they plot to kill him. They, 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 they take him and they throw him into a pit and they traffic him. They sell him into slavery, some slave traders for some coin. They come back and they lie about Joseph's death. And there is no bit of small irony about the fact that, that they use a goat and a, a goat dipped in blood, a, a coat, his coat dipped in blood, the blood of a goat and a staff which is the same trick that Jacob had pulled on his parents to secure a blessing just a generation before. History repeats itself. They lie about Joseph's death. They even host a fake funeral. Joseph's unjustly imprisoned, and the family relationships are broken between Jacob and his sons. So here's what I want to get at. The main point of this section here is I just want to get at this fact that the primary point of Genesis, again, is not about lifting up the family as some idol, some, some uh, traditional, you know, some pillar of traditional family values and saying emulate. Like, I don't know if you were taught this in church, the heroes of the faith. A Father Abraham had many sons. We sang these songs growing up. Many sons had Father Abraham. We left out the part about the uh, sexual abuse in that song. We left out the part about the lying in that song, the deceiving in that song. Where was that in the song? These are not heroes. They're not. They're broken. They're flawed. And the point of Genesis is not to say, here's the family, idolize it, do it like they did. The point of Genesis is how God's grace breaks in over and over and over again to rescue this dysfunctional family system and through them to bring about God's grace and blessing to the world. That's the point of Genesis in a nutshell. 
And here's the main point that we learn about the family in the book of Genesis, about our family of origin. The blessings and the brokenness of our families going back two to three generations. That's what family means. The word family means multiple generations in the Bible. Not just your immediate family, but your parents, your grandparents, and their parents. So put it in a modern context, family in the Bible would mean going back to about the early 19th century for most of us. The family profoundly impacts who we are today. The blessing and the brokenness profoundly shapes and impacts who we are today. Now we know this is not just psychologizing the text because God himself will actually unpack this meaning in Exodus. So God has something to say about this. Actually, later on in the narrative, so remember the Torah is is read as one book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses, in reflecting on this family lineage, encounters God in Exodus chapter 34 and decides to write this down for us. So in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, remember the context. We talked about this a couple years ago when we taught through Exodus. Israel is at Mount Sinai after God rescues them from slavery. He's establishing a new family relationship. In Exodus 19, he said, I am your father. Very first time God says that in the Bible. I am your father. You are my sons. You will be my inheritors of this covenant. And we're developing this partnership where you're going to learn my heart, my values, my character. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Not just rules, don't do this, but it's about a relationship with God and how we're to reflect him and represent him as his family in the world. So Moses goes up on the mountain, Exodus 34, and he asks to see God's glory. I want to see your presence. For 40 days and 40 nights, he's on the mountain. And here's what God says to him. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the key. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. What in the world does that mean? Some people call this passage a generational curse. And the idea is that God punishes their children and the grandchildren for the sins of the parents. That is not what is happening in this passage. This is the idea of generational sin, not the idea of generational curse. Innocent children are, not, are never in the Bible punished solely for their ancestors' sins. Ezekiel 18.20 actually says this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So this is not teaching that we're guilty for the sins of our parents or our grandparents. When he he says the sins of the father, the iniquity of the father, what he's talking about is the patterns and the habits and the scripts that lead towards rebellion. Every family has them. I don't care how great your family was growing up. We all have them. What he means here is not that we're punished for that. What he means here is that the sins of the fathers get passed down and often continue to influence the next generations. To the third and fourth generation is a Hebrew idiom, just meaning whatever it takes, like however long it takes, it will continue to influence and work its way through the system until it's 
disrupted, stopped. One Hebrew scholar actually makes the case that here we ought to read this to the third and fourth generation in light of Genesis. They were meant to be read as one story. And to interpret third and fourth generation as him talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With each successive generation, they made it harder for them, meant more difficult for them to be faithful because of the compounding interest of their sin and the destructive family habits that accumulated over generations. So when you see the sins of the father are passed down, think Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What it means, what he's saying here, is that they may be out of Egypt and heading towards the promised land, but Egypt is not out of them, not out of their bones. It's been said you can have Jesus in your heart, but your grandpa lives in your bones. That's what he's saying. That's what the deal is with the golden calf. They still haven't learned. While Moses is up on the mountain having this conversation, they are betraying the covenant because they still have Egypt in their bones. They have this chronic sense of abandonment. God has left us. Where is God? Some of you know what it's like to live with that chronic sense of abandonment. The same thing you see, that the fact that children tend to repeat the sins of the past. What he's saying is they do that. They tend to repeat the sins of their parents. And if they do that, they will receive the same judgment as their parents and their grandparents did. That's why the kings of Israel, if you read through the book of Kings, one of the most common phrases is they walked in the ways of what? Their father. And their father there sometimes refers to great, great, great grandparents. Hurt people, we say, do what? Hurt people. In our families, it's, it's where we learn. What's passed down from generation to generation is we learn how to hate sometimes. We learn how to not trust. We, we learn how to do conflict poorly. We, we have particular bents towards types of sins, addictions, alcoholism, anger, lust. We learn these, or, or they're passed down even somewhat genetically through our families. We learn how to do emotions in our families. We learn to be loyal to our family over and above everybody else in our families of origin. We, we learn negative attitudes towards other races and cultures and ethnicities in our family of origin. And it's not like our parents sit down and say, now, here's what I want you to think about this particular group of people. It's in all the things that are said and oftentimes what's not said that we learn those things. We learn how to do money. We learn how to think about success and achievement. And what he's saying is God holds us accountable for not repeating those mistakes and patterns. You are responsible for breaking those patterns with the help of God. So, sins are passed down. And he's also saying that the consequences tend to last for multiple generations. It doesn't just impact the kids, right? Like how we show up in relationships we see in the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph is not simply the result of our individual biology or our personal choices, your deepest problems are always learned in the context. Think about where you struggle the most right now. It's always a learned behavior, and it's learned in the context of broken relationships, most significantly our families of origin, which means then also that they're only going to be healed in the context of new relationships. You are broken in relationships, and you will only be healed in relationships. We know this to be true. We know this to be true. I don't want to spend a bunch of time. I don't think I need to impart on a generation. Largely, many of you I know are in counseling right now. 
the significance of family trauma over multiple generations. But just like examples, just think about like close relationships you have with like a roommate, or let's say you got married in the last couple years, and everything was awesome when you were single, and you were dating, you're like, this person's amazing, they're the answer to all my life's problems, they're not like my mom, they're not like my dad. And then all of a sudden, the longer you know them, the better you know them, the closer you get to know them, what happens? These little patterns begin to pop up, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting, I didn't see that when we were dating. Right? They explode in a new kind of way, under a certain kind of stress, in, let's say a pandemic, hypothetically. They withdraw, and all of a sudden they begin to run away and freeze up in the midst of conflict, and they shut the door, they slam the door, and they don't want to come out. They start to lie and deceive out of fear, shame. What happened? What happened is you're getting close to those strategies. You're getting closer in intimacy, and you're dialing into those family issues, those ways they learn to be. The closer that you get, those defenses begin to come back up. Those strategies that you, they use to, to cope with their brokenness all of a sudden surface. Kurt Thompson, one Christian author, says 80% in research in uh, marriage and family therapy, for instance, 80% of our emotional issues in marriage are not caused by marriage, but they're actually just surfaced in marriage. But the issue was there before you got married. Whoa. So a question you should ask the next time you're in the middle of a fight with your spouse is, what 80% is showing up here? Well, part of the 80%. We know this to be true. You grow up in poverty. Your, your grandparents were poor. You grow up in wealth. You grow up in a system of abuse or addiction or divorce or trauma or neglect. Your, your grandparents were immigrants. They lived through a war. Many of us, our parents were children of men and women who lived through a war. And many of our intimacy issues go back to our grandparents, great-grandparents. Think about the racial justice conversation. It's so interesting. Like, we, 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 we have racism in our American family system. Regardless of what you think about the pathways forward, that kind of trauma doesn't just go away in a generation. Regardless of how sincere we are when we say we're sorry or that we don't want to deal with it. It's in our family system. It continues to impact generations of people not that long ago in our city. Now, there's so much that we could say about this, and we just don't have time. But I just want to just make that point. Like, just think about your own family story. I know I think about my own story and my parents and my grandparents. My parents grew up, and they're watching probably on the live stream today. They go to our church. Really awkward to talk about your family tree in front of your parents. But they grew up in abusive homes with lots of addictions and, and, and homes where literally when they became adults, they said, we are out of here as fast as we can. They were not Christians. And so much abuse, so much trauma, and that got bottled up. And so I grew up in a family where I was not, praise God, abused. But we did not talk about hard stuff. We did not deal with emotions. We stuffed them down. And so I became disconnected from my emotions. I had a hard time with anger, sadness, anxiety, fear, it all got bottled up inside, and it came to a head and exploded in my 20s. And as I began to dig in and realize what my parents had experienced, at first I got mad at them, and I became angry towards them. Then I became compassionate as I learned they're simply transmitting what they learned from their parents and their parents. And it led to this place of compassion. 
And there's so much that we could talk about here that we don't have time to get into. Family systems theory, attachment theory, interpersonal neurobiology, right? We're not going to go there. Unfortunately, our workshop with Rich Plast that we had scheduled tomorrow night has been canceled. I'm so sorry to kind of announce that and drop that on emotions and family origin. He is uh, ill, and so we are going to reschedule that. But we don't have time to get into that, but let me encourage you to read their book. It's called Relational Soul, Rich Plast and Jim Colfield. It's a great book, and it deals with a lot of these issues. We'll reschedule that workshop for another time. There's great resources out there if you want to do this kind of work. There's a great resource called the Genogram, where you can actually map out your family tree, and you can look at the relationship between successive generations. You can get on emotionallyhealthy.org and actually download a template and begin to do that work on your own. And I highly encourage you to do that. But here's what I want us to focus on just for the remainder of our time. There is good news, right? There is good news in this. Notice in this passage in Exodus 34, God's love and mercy triumph over judgment and generational sin. He will visit the sin of the fathers on the children. It will continue to be passed down over third and fourth generation, but his steadfast love, his covenant love, goes what? Thousands of generations. That's an intentional contrast, juxtaposition. God's mercy and love triumph over judgment. And that's what we see in the rest of the story of Joseph, that our history is not our destiny. Our past, we are not locked into our past in a way that is our forever future. Joseph is sold into slavery. His father thinks he's dead. In slavery, Joseph rises to become the head of Potiphar's house. He was the captain of the guard, elite military in Pharaoh's operation. But in there, he's accused falsely of sexual assault, and he's thrown into prison on false charges. Even through all of that in prison, he meets two of Pharaoh's key officials. And eventually he's asked to and invited to interpret some dreams that Pharaoh's having. And through this process, he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. He's literally the right hand of Pharaoh. And a famine arises, and Joseph creates this hunger relief program. He anticipates this famine coming, and he creates this massive hunger relief program. And lo and behold, who comes asking for food? but his brothers, the same ones who sold him into slavery. Joseph knows them, and this is so great. This is what we all want, but they don't recognize him. He has all this power, and they have no idea who he is. He can crush them. But what he does is he actually tests them by creating a scenario where they have to relive the past. A brother is in distress, thrown into the pit, thrown into the dungeon. Will they leave him and abandon him like they did Joseph or not? And this situation forces the family to reckon with their past, and it leads to repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how did Joseph get to this place where he could be so resilient under that kind of stress, so resilient under that kind of trauma. Remember, Joseph did not start in this place. He started as arrogant. He started as immature, entitled, a spoiled teenager who was doted on by his enabling father. But at that moment where Joseph has power, he has what most of us long for, the power to be able to go back, like those revenge fantasies that you live out. There's like a whole genre of like literature and movies around revenge. That moment where you get to go back and say the thing you wish you would have said or hurt the person that hurt you. 
Joseph refuses to do it. And he uses his power for redemption. He himself allows this suffering and trauma from his family of origin to not make him bitter and harder, but to make him softer, more gracious, more resilient. And it's through this process of suffering that actually he is also changed. He saves his family. God uses it to save him. And not only that, he saves the nation from famine. Now, pay attention. This took 20 years. It's a long process, often much longer than what we'd like to think. So I'm not going to say to you, go home today and have some come-to-Jesus meeting with your family, and then you're going to be like Joseph. Everything's going to be reconciled. Now, it gets worse before it gets better in the story of Joseph, time and time again. But God does bring about his redemptive purposes. We see here in chapter 50, Joseph becomes a guy who can weep and mourn over his family's brokenness. He weeps multiple times in chapters 37 to 50, just tears of sadness when he remembers the evil that was committed. He can talk honestly about and remember and tell the truth about the evil. This word evil in the Hebrew is the word harm, hurt. He can talk honestly about it. He, he forgave them and he orchestrated their reconciliation. He can anticipate their fears. He's outside of himself now, understanding that they're going to be afraid. They fabricated this story after their father died about, uh, our father said that you should forgive us. They knew that Joseph respected their dad, so they used their dead father's name to tell a lie again. And Joseph's able to see through that and say, hey, I'm not here to punish you. Literally, I love this phrase in the Hebrew. It ends in, in verse 21. He comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. That's not just being nice. Literally, it's he spoke to their heart. He spoke the right words at the right moment, and it pierced their hearts. And Joseph becomes a blessing to the entire nation of Israel and the entire nation of Egypt. Now, here's the key, and then we'll just begin to wrap this up. Wish we had, we had so much here. Joseph made peace with his past. That's what we see here in Genesis 50. Joseph made peace with his past. He allowed God to do this integrative work to integrate both the blessings and the inheritance that he received from his father Abraham, passed down through Isaac and Jacob, yes, imperfectly, but still passed down, and the brokenness. He weaves it into a tapestry of redemption. Now, here's where it hits relationships. We cannot make peace with others if we don't make peace with our past. One of my favorite things that Rich Plass has to say to Emily and I on a regular basis, you will not make peace with others if you can't make peace with your past. And discipleship and spiritual formation, Pete Scazzaro says, requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. We have to go back sometimes in order to go forward. And what Joseph learned to do is what we must learn to do, is to reinterpret our story in light of God's story. That's what was happening here in chapter 50. You see a man who has done some deep reflection, deep prayer. We, we're not told how this process works, but here's what Joseph said. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
Can you say that with your family of origin? Like, what, what would you say if I said to you right now, God placed you in your family of origin? How, do you, how does that make you feel? God placed you with all that you've experienced. And can you say with Joseph, what, God, what, what, what people mean for evil, what Satan meant for evil with what you've lived? God meant for good. God, in other words, God uses, and he carves out of the darkness and the brokenness and the sin and the injustice, he, he turns it to good. He overwhelms it with good. This is a radical reinterpretation of his life story that is not the natural result of like the way that we tend to think about life. It's the result of reflection and wrestling and surrender and wisdom through much suffering that allowed him to become this receptive and loving person who forgives family members that betrayed him, traumatized him, wounded him. That's what we must do in our own stories. You see, our stories are essentially comprised of the events that happen to us, the emotions that surround those events, which oftentimes are implicit and unconscious. Nonetheless, they happen. And then how we interpret the world and make sense of the world, which gets internalized and lived out in default patterns and scripts for living and loving. You see, when you get triggered, what's happening? Those events, those emotions that lie beneath the surface in your implicit memory oftentimes generate automatic responses, anger, sadness, depression, rage, fear, anxiety. Where do those come from? You ever ask, like, where do those come from? I didn't want to be like that. I got triggered. That's what you're talking about. Those events, those emotions from your childhood that get buried, that you forget about, suddenly rise to the surface. We talked about the Titanic last week. And what needs to happen for all of us is really, there's two categories. Sin needs to be repented of, because you, you participate in that. You respond to that in sinful ways. I'm not saying that everything happens to you is your fault, but your response to that always involves sin. So sin needs repentance, it needs repair, it needs forgiveness, it needs reconciliation. But hear me say this too, you also have wounds that need to be healed. You are not just a sinner, you are a wounded person, and those wounds need to be tended and healed. Read the book of Psalms. God is a healer. And here's the thing, you cannot change your past if you are not aware of how it's impacting your present. If you're not aware of those interpretations that you've internalized, those scripts that you believe that you're living out of, the present is a window into your past. So when something's happening and, and you're triggered, you have these default patterns that are being repeated over and over and over again, it's an opportunity to stop and say, what's happening? Why am I showing up this way in my relationships? What does this tell me about the way my family of origin operated? I'm going to throw up on the screen just a list of questions for you. Just take a picture of these. We can send them out if it would be helpful this week. But like just understanding things about your family of origin, how, you, how your family of origin did emotions, how your family of origin placed expectations on you, how they leaned into you for emotional support, the intimacy that you watch with your parents, which leads some of you to distance in your intimacy now, others of you with enmeshment in your relationships now. Like, these are all ways that we need to explore our interpretations of the world. We can't reinterpret what we're not aware of. 
we're out of time. So, like Joseph, we need to reinterpret our story in light of God's story. You cannot change the events of your past. You cannot change how you felt about your past, the emotions. But here's what can change. Your interpretations can change. Your interpretations of those events can be transformed. And the way that it happens is through your story. It is remembering your story, and it is telling your story in the loving presence of healing relationships. Mainly, a relationship, first and foremost, with God. That's what we call communion. And then, relationships with others. That's what happens here with Joseph. Over and over and over again, we see Joseph, in the presence of God, we see this phrase repeated several times in the the story of Joseph. The Lord was with him. Joseph had a conscious awareness that God was with him. Reinterpreting our story starts with trusting and trusting our story to God. That's the invitation of the gospel. Come to me. Trust me. Love me. Surrender to me. Give me your story, and I will reshape all of who you are. Joseph took the stories that he'd heard growing up, the covenant he grew up in, the teaching about God's character that he learned from his parents and his grandparents, and he applied it to his heart. And it led him to this place where he can say, what you meant for evil, God worked good through. I'm not in the place of God. I'm not wise enough to punish you, right? God engages and overwhelms the suffering in my life so that it serves the opposite purpose for which it was intended. Instead of crushing me, it became the thing that softened me and deepened me. See, Joseph needed to be reparented by God. You need to be reparented by God to experience God in the depths of your being. Not just ideas about God, but actually experience God in your heart. And remember that Joseph is just a signpost. Joseph's not a hero either. Joseph's a signpost pointing us to Jesus. And if you do a study and you look at all the parallels between Jesus and Joseph— right? You see Jesus is the one to whom Joseph points, the one who was betrayed by his family for several coins, the one who was thrown into prison and suffered unjustly, the one who knew that, uh, what, what it meant for that others, excuse me, the one that he knew what others meant for evil, God was working for good in his own life and saving the lives of many. Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension reshapes the interpretation of our stories. As we come to participate in the life of God with the Spirit of God, we learn trust. We learn love. We learn forgiveness. We learn reconciliation. We learn to grieve with hope and to see a a bigger horizon for our lives than just pointless trauma and suffering. That's why throughout the Bible, one of the key phrases repeated over and over and over again, remember. Don't forget God Don't forget your story in light of God's story. Bless the Lord, the psalmist says, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives your iniquity, who heals your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with a steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like these. Don't forget. Remember your story, but remember that you're not alone that God was with you. He is with you. He will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you in the midst of your family's brokenness. Communion with God is so key. And in community with others, just relationships with others. Remembering and telling his story required not just the presence of God, but also his family. We are hurt and healed in relationships. 
We need to be reparented by God, but we also need to be refamilied by the family of God. God gives us a new family. We're born again, Jesus says, into a new family. We're adopted into the family of God, and it's there in our discipleship and our formation in this place that we learn to put off old patterns and habits and scripts and to replace them with new ones. It's here with these concrete real people and all of our shared brokenness and all of our generational dysfunctional family trauma. Think about how many family systems are represented in this room. That is a lot of trauma. But it's here that we learn that our biological families are not our destiny. Even if you had a good family, it's still broken, and you still need to learn what it looks like to be loyal to Jesus and loyal to the people of God. And that's the promise of the New Testament, that you've been placed into a family with brothers and sisters. And God will use this family to transform your life as you learn to walk in vulnerability, to confess your story, to remember that and to tell it in the presence of wise and loving believers who can hold you as God is holding us in the midst of our suffering, a God who knows and understands suffering. Brothers and sisters who know and understand what it's like to be broken and sinful and yet deeply loved. This is the hopefulness that we walk in, in the family of God. Let's, let's just pray. We're going to go take communion together here. And I, and I know that for many of us, there, are, there is profound brokenness in our families. And I know that we need to be reparented by God. We need, like Joseph, to have our stories reinterpreted. And we need to be refamilied. But we don't know what that looks like. We have no idea what the next steps are. And so I just want to acknowledge just the fear, the anxiety, the pain, the suffering. I just want to encourage you, lift it up to God right now. Just ask God, God, show me what it looks like to pursue wholeness. Show me what it looks like for me to be able to say with Joseph what others meant for evil, God meant for good. Just see God with you. See God for you longing to heal you, available to you, his presence and power made available to you in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit right now. If you would just reach out and take hold of it and say, I trust you, I love you, I'm willing to go and wrestle and reflect and do this work with you, God, would you meet me in this place? Confess your sins. Acknowledge your longings right now. Let this be our confession. Let this be our invitation and communion.